0: chapter 16, which is the nature of the godly and the demonic. As we said, Krishna starts this chapter by, of course, first focusing on the qualities of the divine, of the godly. And there are 26 in number. The first three stanzas focus on them. And as we suggested last class, I hope at least some of you have made a list of, perhaps even if not all 26, just a few, that could be guideposts throughout your day. But then he really goes on, and the way he says it, he says, I've focused a lot. And in fact, everything that he's done is, you know, it's just like, this is what the man of truth looks like. This is what a man of self-realization looks like. This is what he who walks the path of Dharma looks like. And he's given us quality after quality, attitude after attitude, you know, awareness after awareness. Now he's really saying, you know, let's just focus on what the demonic look like. And um, we talked about the psychology of such a presentation, is that sometimes it's easy for us to see if somebody says, you know, oh, it's help- it's good to be truthful. A part of our mind just naturally says, yeah, yeah I'm truthful, you know, it's just It's a given. I don't really tune that much into how am I really truthful or not. I just assume because generally that's my energy. Oh, it's good to be kind. And then generally we say, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm kind. And sometimes when we see, you know, these beautiful qualities, which of course we do possess, um, it's easy for us to feel, okay, you know, that's, it's, I'm, I'm there. I'm already, but then Krishna, of course, in helping us see also, what are the qualities of that downward pulling force inside all of us? This is what the demonic qualities are. And I like to stress again and again that demonic does not mean necessarily bad, evil, you know, horrible, it just means that energy that focuses or draws our awareness a lot more into separation, a lot more into ego. And it kind of just clouds our abilities to perceive unity, clouds our ability to perceive perhaps a more divine Kind of all-pervading consciousness. That's all. So it can be noble qualities as well that sometimes draw us away. So you have to be mindful of the fact that we don't judge neither ourselves and especially more so judge anybody else as, oh, you possess these qualities, therefore you're somehow, you know, bad or a horrible person. No, it's just part of everything that we've gained or we've brought with us into this life. We are now on verse 12. Bound by the fetters of hundreds of selfish hopes and expectations, and enslaved by passion and anger, they strive by unlawful means to amass fortunes with which to purchase sensual physical pleasures. Bound by the fetters. Fetters are chains. Bound by these chains, all of us, you know. I, the image that comes to me, I don't know if you remember, see um, in these older movies you, the ball and chain, or the other, you know, like a chain with this heavy metal ball at the end. And so the prisoners would walk really slowly and they couldn't escape even while they were outdoors. It's like us, we can't escape. I mean, we, it's not like we're bound in, you know, in bars. Everything's available to us, you know, freedom's right here we just can't shake off the weight that we're pulling along with us so of course krishna is being very generous and saying bound by hundreds <laughs> it's a little probably the numbers a little thousands
1: thousands
0: maybe let's go a little higher at times you know just so much so much that we want and hope and need and expect bound by fetters of hundreds of selfish hopes and expectations so now that we understand that yeah we are bound by all these things enslaved by passion and anger. Um, I don't know exactly where, but at least twice before, Krishna talks about as desire and anger are the two strongest forces of Maya. And one is the desire that is that somewhere outside of me, you know, lies my happiness. And anger being the other part of the same coin is when a desire is thwarted, anger naturally, you know, when I don't get what I want, I get upset. Right, So passion and anger, once again, he brings these two qualities and he says enslaved. So first we're bound, you know, the heavy chains of all our hopes, all our dreams, all our expectations, just kind of a amorphous, large, heavy weight. And then there's an enslavement and an enslavement suggests a little bit stronger. It's not that I'm bound because I could break that chain. But, uh, you know, I couldn't necessarily stop being a slave of. If I have a master, for example, I'm a slave. No matter where I go, I'm a slave. <laughs> if I can roam around freely on the streets, but everybody knows your uska servant he's his slave. And that's a harder reality to break. So while we can work on some of our hopes and expectations, this ingrained passion and anger, which is passion, and then when it's not fulfilled, a natural tendency to get upset, that that really holds us in a slightly stronger, you know, enslavement. They strive by unlawful means to amass fortunes with which to purchase sensual physical pleasures. It's, you know, this scripture, I mean, I don't know exactly when it was written, but this conversation we're assuming is at least 5,000 years old, right? I mean, that's what we at least can tune in from the Dwapara-Kali shift. That is what the Mahabharata also signifies. They moved from descending Dwapara into descending Kali in that moment of the war. But it's almost like he's talking exactly right now. It's like 5,000 years ago also. What were people doing? Striving by unlawful means to amass fortunes, with which they could purchase sensual, physical pleasure. It just doesn't matter where you are. (laughs) You know, if you were like billion years old or you're just a few millennia old or for today, the concept of what mankind gets so easily caught up in is pretty much exactly the same. But an important word here is unlawful. Now, unlawful by what standards? Not society's laws, although uh, I'm sure a lot of those are being broken as well in the pursuit of Uh, You know, the amassing of fortunes. But of course, Krishna is talking about the spiritual laws. God's laws. Unlawfully, we seek to gain. Now, what are these laws? He doesn't mention any law in particular. Of course, there are two laws that come to my mind. One is the yamas and the niyamas in its entirety. You know, non-violence, non-lying, those qualities that we have to get in complete attunement with before in the pursuit of amassing anything from this world if we follow the Yamas and the Niyamas, we create no Karma. There'll be no ripples in the process of whatever we do will be in perfect kind of attunement with Dharma. But on the other level, one particular law that comes to my mind is the law of which is the very law of prosperity and abundance is the need or the desire to take without giving. That's like, for me, that's like one of the biggest laws we tend to want to break, to take without giving. And now that's a little more understood, isn't it? Yeah, it's important that give and take concept. We can even wrap our heads around it. I would go a step further and say, to take before giving. And that's a bigger law in the universe. The universe is constantly looking for people who give. And if we can get into tune, and that's the highest, you can say, spiritual law. And I'm talking about everything. Give love rather than take love. Give your time rather than demand time from others. Give your energy rather than seek for others' energy. And of course, in this particular case, it definitely also works with your finances or the concept of money in general, whatever that may mean for you. This very idea, and this is one very primary law, this concept that we need to take either and not give at all, which is what most people would do. But even if we have understood that there is a give and take relationship, always to recognize that it's more important to give. In a previous chapter, Krishna kind of vehemently says, he who takes or receives without giving nothing in return is verily a thief so in anything that we are doing this is a very key reality here to tune into this law anywhere spiritually materially in a relationship in a friendship in giving and taking from the body i mean whatever it is as long as there is a give and take relationship in this universe tune into the fact Am I giving first and then tune into also the fact, am I giving at all (laughs) and then see if you can get in attunement with that. Um, For the longest time, I've been very, I've avoided having a credit card. You know, that concept of credit cards is something that I'm always a little wary of. Of course, now I have to because certain places they don't allow for debit cards and a lot of the work that we do or these auto renewals of Zooms and all our services require credit cards. But if ever given a choice, I'd never use my credit card to buy anything. I'll always use my debit card because it's it's a very subtle consciousness there which says you can take. But the money is not yet deducted from your account. And it sits there. And there's a certain joy that, that, that gives us, no? And there's just this slight shift in our own awareness and that consciousness of a little bit of greed sets in. And of course, this is just our own unique way to work with these things. I'm not saying credit cards in any way are evil. But I am saying that there is a subtle understanding there that each of us need to bring into this process. What does it mean to be lawful in the ability of us to work with the universe towards abundance? Because that's what it is. An abundance of consciousness is also what we are seeking, isn't it? Eventually, that's what unity with God is. is that complete, infinite, abundant state of being. This much, they say, I have acquired today. Putting me in a position to attain this desire. It's just amazing how it didn't, doesn't matter where we are. <laughs> These are the same thoughts that go on even today in people. And I have this much money at present, my goal now is to acquire more. Now, it's, it's a little tricky in the spiritual realm, money, isn't it? Sometimes it almost seems like the masters or in this particular case Krishna. It's like they're anti-money almost. Like money is an evil thing. Which it can be of course. In if just as anything in this world can turn one way or the other. But it's this compulsion. Of I have this. This is going to allow me to do this. And there when I want that. Then I'm going to have to have more. Hold it. And this need to hold to have to ourselves, because in order to have, unfortunately you have to separate you know, the world from you. Where my hand was my hand, it was someone else's hand, and hopefully it will be my hand at some point. And this constant need to kind of demarcate, to kind of put a number to everything. How much is my account now? Let me check and what can I do with it? And again and again, these are the demonic qualities Krishna is talking about. Why? Because they really enhance separation. They really talk about, this is mine, this is my world, everything else is not mine, and I hope someday even that will be mine, and so on and so forth. Then he continues to say in the same vein, or they say, today I have slain this enemy. I have, you know, today we don't have, we're not slaying our enemies, but because I got that promotion. <laughs> you know, next I shall slay more. What I wanted, I possess. I am successful, powerful and happy. When I read this, I was like, hmm, sounds a lot like some of our affirmations. <laughs> I am successful, I am powerful, I am happy. I was like, maybe I shouldn't be saying those things anymore. But again, the idea here is this, this I, I, I. Narayani, last uh, class gave us the challenge of, um, what was it, I know.
1: Avoid the expression, I know.
0: I know. (laughs) And we were working from the concept which was the first quality of the uh, godly side of the divine quality which was fearlessness. fearlessness. And Swamiji says, fearlessness comes when you have nothing to protect. And the idea being that we're so, we're always trying to protect the ego. And this is exactly what happens in the beginning of the battle. In chapter 1 of the Gita itself, what is, um, what's his name now? (laughs) Duryodhan, that's the name. (laughs) What is Duryodhan? Is Duryodhan the son of Dhritarashtra, right? Get these names confused sometimes. Duryodhan, he's talking to Dronacharya, who's his guru. And he's telling him, you know, these are all the people that we have. These are all the people that they have. He's naming all the warriors. And he says, finally, but the most important thing is we have to protect Bhishma. And he's telling all his people, protect Bhishma at all costs. And Bhishma represents the ego. Just that I. Just that I am separate from. And that's Duryodhan's entire game plan. Doesn't matter. If Bhishma can stay protected, doesn't matter how many of our people get slain. Doesn't matter if anger goes and it doesn't matter if greed goes. Because as long as there's an I, that anger will come back and that greed will come back sooner or later. So that I is extremely and kind needs so much protection. And the whole Mahabharata, that entire war is about, at all costs we must protect Bhishma. And that's how we live in the world at all costs. I must protect this I. And therefore, in order to protect, I must have this, 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 and so on and so forth. Again, again, they say, I am wealthy and well-born. Who can rival me? I will show my greatness by giving alms and making public sacrifices. I will rejoice in my glory. thus they boast, befuddled by their own lack of wisdom. There's another kind of misconception in our minds is you know when we think of demonic or when we think people who are really going through, we, we don't naturally think of people who have actually really good lives. You know when we think of like those who are because later on Krishna says, and I just want to read that um, Whereas, yeah, these cruel perpetrators of evil, this is 19th verse, filled with hatred, worst of the human race, I hurl again and again into demonic wombs on their return to earth. So there's this idea, it's like, Krishna, you know, he's like, he's really punishing them. it sounds like he's really punishing them, he's like... Purposefully, put it womb, Of course, he's not doing any of that. The vibration of our own consciousness just draws us to the particular circumstance that's going to most easily gel with that vibration. But you can see this image and there's some image as if he's, you know, puttkoing them down. He's going to give them really horrible lives. But actually, it's not true at all. You know, demonic qualities are of people who are actually living wonderful lives. Many of the most rich people possess a lot of demonic qualities. Many of the scientists of today possess a lot of demonic qualities. Also, of course, they possess divine and godly qualities. But we've got this idea that good karma, bad karma is like, you know, if you're like a bad person, you're getting a lot of bad karma, which means like you're going to have a horrible life. But That's not how good or bad karma works. You know, it just works as what is going to enhance more and more separation if that's the vibration you've created. And oftentimes, money enhances more separation. Oftentimes, when you're living a more luxurious life, that enhances more separation. A simpler life oftentimes doesn't. And so when we're looking at the world and when we're looking at our ascent towards God, And we're looking, when we look at somebody and I say, oh, look at that person, you know, he's got everything he wants. A part of me naturally thinks, oh, look, it must be his very good karma. I must have done something really good in his previous life. But that's not necessarily so at all. I often use an example of a person who, say, wins the lottery, you know, and he wins the lottery and now he's got a million whatever dollars, say, for example and everybody would say oh wow what a great karma you won the lottery man you were just you know nobody and now you're suddenly a millionaire but then what does that man do with this money or the woman whoever it is you know maybe they get really complacent maybe they get you know go into drugs and alcohol or they gamble their money away or now that they have a lot of money they push aside a lot of the people who were closer to them when they were (laughs) You know humbler people and then on the other side you think about say somebody who has a terrible accident and you know breaks their leg and they're like in hospital for several months and i think about that person and while they're laying in bed with nothing to do somebody gives them the autobiography of a yogi and they read that book and during that moment of pain and suffering that they were going through you know suddenly they're filled with an entire different perspective and then you look at these two realities and you say, what's good karma and what's bad karma here? Is breaking our leg so that the autobiography could come into my life good karma or is winning a million dollars? So I become an alcoholic and I separate myself from everybody who's ever loved me. And you've got to really tune into what you desire. Because you may think these are the things that'll actually make you happy or allow you to grow or you know, oh if I have enough then I cannot worry about this and then I will focus on my spiritual life, so on and so forth. There's so many twisted ways that the ego will try to confuse you.
1: What Swamiji said, you know, about money in itself is not a bad thing. Mm. It's what you do with money that determines if that's a good or bad action, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So something like that. Now, Raini, if you realized, um, we were not here on Tuesdays because we went away for three days. And during the three days that we were away, um, both of us had a continuous and horrible headache. I don't know why, you know, throughout. Three days of just headache, headache. Some, uh, I brought it back with me a little bit. But um, we had a, a friend in Spain, actually a very saintly person, who has a very beautiful group of disciples of his own in Spain. And he used to cut, I don't know if jokingly, but anything that happened, he would say, the Kundalini is rising, You <laughs> no matter. I'm having this pain, your Kundalini is rising. So we would always I joke. Were
1: like, I hope so.
0: <laughs> so we will always joke, you know, oh, my head's hurting. Must be our Kundalini rising. But uh, on a more, you know, realistic note, every time our bodies go through anything, we're always like, yeah, some karma is burning. Isn't that wonderful? And what anybody would say is, like, oh, you know, too bad and this and that. And of course, it's uncomfortable, but any karma burning is going to be an uncomfortable process. And the body takes on sometimes these karmas and is able to burn it for us in subconscious ways that you and I are not even aware of. And so every time something happens, we're like, ah, you know, oh finally my body is doing something on my behalf. Isn't that great? So we've got to really tune into this concept of good, bad, especially in the spiritual realm. We've got to really tune into what's going to bring me closer to God moment by moment and not confuse yourself by, you know, the generic ideas of what in general, essentially society considers good or bad. Addled in thought, caught. In a spider's web of delusion, craving only sensual delights, they sink in life and even more so after death to a foul hell. So Krishna is talking about as your consciousness moves more and more and more and more towards separation, moves more and more and more towards an egoic um, strengthening of your separate identity, the consciousness goes lower, 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 lower. And not only in this world, but especially when we leave the body and when we're only the astral body, where it's much where our vibration and our consciousness is freer to attract just exactly the circumstance that it vibrates with, we go into really deep states of um, hellish astral worlds. Yogananda said that certain people Um, You know, we always think of the astral world as how we're going to go to this beautiful place and it's going to be vibrant and light and how much fun it's going to be. At least the way uh, Swami Sri Yukteswar paints these beautiful things in the book when he talks about in his resurrection. But that's only if that's your consciousness. Otherwise, Yogananda said there are infinite number of astral worlds for each of us to go to, which if we've been and lived a very, very desire animalistic materialistic life you'll just go there because that's the vibration of separation it's not uh, it's not in the christian tradition where we look at it as punishment or reward It has nothing to do with punishment or reward it only has to do with the universe can only sustain the vibration that you put out It can only give you that, even if you know, even if the most merciful God says, "Oh, you know, I'm so sorry you're suffering. I wish I could just lift you up and place you in the most amazing of, you know, into Vaikunt." Well, you just can't because that's the vibration you've generated, and in this world, you don't see that vibration so clearly because it's. Um, there's so many of our karmas intersecting, right? So you see a person and he's living in a beautiful house and he's, you know, really comfortable and he has everything that he wants and you just naturally assume that, wow, I mean, this guy's living a great life, isn't he? But the moment you take away the body and the circumstances and this life's particular karmic intersection, the predominant vibration that he has lived, he could have lived a wonderful life too, but the predominant vibration he has lived, that's the vibration he will go to right after death because that's in the astral world it's much subtler and it's much more sensitive to what the energy you've been putting out thus far (laughs) thus far vain and heedless obstinate intoxicated by pride in wealth hypocritical in whatever sacrifices they perform careless of spiritual injunctions let's continue 18, this is egotistical, ruthless, arrogant, lascivious, prone to fits of rage. These evil intending persons despise me, though for all that I dwell in them as in all beings. These evil intending persons despise me. That's a strong statement, isn't it? And doesn't necessarily seem true. I mean, I know a lot of people who are very religious people or talk a lot about God, but their actions are very much of what Krishna is talking about. And as we, as we were saying, at times we ourselves express a lot of these demonic qualities. Yet, it's not I don't despise Krishna at all, do I? But when you're in that vibration, again, it's not a mental thing, is it? When you're in that vibration, you despise... Everything that Krishna represents. Love, unity, giving, kindness, understanding, cooperation. None of that matters in this. When I'm in a mood, I'm in my mood. Now in my mind, I don't say I despise Krishna. But that vibration despises Krishna. Which is a vibration of light. Which is a vibration of joy. When you're in a mood, you despise joy. It's just true. If a joyful person were to come around when you're in your mood, you get even more moody. <laughs> you get even more upset. Why he is happy? Because that vibration you can't stand. Then you can only you know, go around people who are also generally in that negative frame of mind. Swamiji would say jokingly, if in a room there are two negative people or whoever, however many, just give them time and they'll sniff each other out. <laughs> And you'll just see people gravitate towards those who have a similar vibration to them. Eventually, that's the general flow and that's another wonderful way to assess what's going on in your own life by seeing the people that are around you, those you've specifically chosen, especially, not not just your family who is in a certain sense come with you for a specific purpose of your own growth. So, these are really things that we need to tune into there are moments in our own lives that we're despising Krishna. When we despise God. And if that's something that's, you know, very going to hit you the way, it, you know, it really struck me. I was like, well, "Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Here I am sitting and it's like, "Ah, oh, I love Krishna and the only thing is God and all we want is God. And, but yeah, oh, there are moments when I actually hate this guy. And so these are the things that need to awaken in us that Wait a minute. I don't want to do this at all. I really have to be mindful. Imagine that we're putting out the vibration that we hate God. We hate God. We despise Krishna. And again, the universe, it really doesn't discriminate. What vibration you put out into the universe, it's there for eternity. I mean, it exists. It's a part of who you are. It's the part of how the universe sees you. It sees you purely as a certain frequency of consciousness nothing else it doesn't see you as oh but actually i wish you know i'm not actually angry with god because i really love him no, no, no it doesn't see that it sees you here when you're here it sees you here when you're here and so we have to be very mindful of where our energy is going to be how easily we get drawn into these demonic moments of our own consciousness these cruel perpetrators of evil filled with hatred worst of the human race. Ouch. I hurl again and again into demonic wombs on their return to earth. So this is it. Again, the more separation you espouse in this life, the next life will further that separation and further that separation and further until, as he says, cursed and fallen, filled with delusion, life after life, far from attaining me, they sink the lowest depths. Now, there's a certain good news here. (laughs) Once you've sunk to the lowest depths, there's nowhere else to go but up. And we again see this in our own lives. I don't know if you've seen it ever, but when we hit rock bottom, suddenly there's this, you can almost say grace, because you can't go any further from God, so now the only power left is attraction. Because you've repelled, repelled yourself to the absolute limit in that moment, and it draws us back. I see in my own life when I had, you know, when I was in my lowest depths, you know, college days with addictions and just pleasures and laziness and so on and so forth. That's kind of almost you can say which was the launching pad for me to then say, "Wait a minute, I don't want this." I know there has to be something greater. Sometimes when we go to absolute when you've cried your heart out, and you were at the lowest state, and suddenly a moment of clarity comes, and it lifts you very much out of that. So even in that lowest, 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 the most beautiful thing is that Krishna has never actually gone. God's never actually away from you. In fact, oftentimes that's the moment, because everything else is gone, you can see just for a momentary glimpse, you see him really clearly. And then if you have the energy in that it takes, you can propel yourself. And then you actually skip a few steps because you've done this vibration for so long that you're very much aware that this vibration doesn't work anymore, and you're able to rise a certain level higher. Lust, anger, and greed. I'm just going to finish this even though I have to go a minute or two. Is yeah, that yeah, okay? Of course, of
1: course. Finish Better to or... finish
0: this chapter. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. And
0: so I'll just read through. Lust, anger, greed for gain. These are the three pathways to hell, leading to the destruction of soul happiness. In man's own interest, he should avoid them all. Lust, anger, greed. Lust in this particular case, of course, lust, naturally, a tendency is to think of sexual energy, but it's more sensual. Lust is when a desire is so overwhelming that, you know, you can't think of anything else. You're so compelled and so bound by it because we all have so many desires, right? I want to be a millionaire. I wish I have a car. I you know, I'd love to star in the greatest movie that's ever been made, so on and so forth, whatever your desires are. And they're there and you know you think about them every now and then but a lust is when it just just consumes you and it's sensual mostly it's less for things so much and it's more for pleasure so whether it's pleasure of just you know wanting to see something that's really beautiful or really uplifting or whatever it is to you so it's all the senses taste touch hear see what else is left smell Smell, lust for (laughs) smell (laughs) once you're in a perfume store or something. (laughs) But of course, the sexual energy naturally tends to be the most powerful because it really combines all of them at their most highest intensity level of pleasure. Anger and greed, as we talked about already. Greed for more and more and more. It's interesting also from a spiritual point of view. Uh, Greed for more experience. Greed for more grace. Greed for more blessings. It's another thing we have to be mindful of. Uh, I've been thinking about the rain a lot because you know, we're dealing with the monsoons here. And when the monsoons come, it's like, oh, wow. I mean, you can really, you can equate rain to like grace. You know, it's, ah, it's falling from heavens. It's beautiful. It's refreshing. It's, but then it goes on <laughs> and then it goes on and then it goes on. And you know, in this house, <laughs> sooner we start getting leaks. Everything gets dirty. And then it's like, then it's pushing. I mean, think about grace and blessings. It just once it starts pouring and pouring and pouring you think we think wouldn't it be lovely if just grace keeps coming into our being but the truth is we can't handle that much grace in our lives this house can't handle that much monsoons because sooner or later the monsoon will start breaking through everything starts leaking and it is everything gets dirty everything gets slushy and so we have to tune into the real truth here is not how much grace, more grace, I want more grace, I want more grace. We have to tune into can I enlarge my consciousness to receive that grace? That's what we're tuning into. As Yogananda put it, um, if a man is really thirsty, he'll say, I'm so thirsty that I can drink an entire lake. He says, but when he comes to the lake after a few handfuls, <laughs> And that's who we are. Few handfuls of grace and we can't even take any more. Then it's like, it's too much. Because grace is not more money. Grace is not more recognition. Grace is that broken leg. Grace is that headache. Grace is more work. So if you can't handle more grace, you know, be respectful and say, Bhagavan what you I'll digest it no. And more people you don't get along
1: with. <laughs>
0: more people you don't get That's grace. Grace is like, oh, you want to come to me sooner? Chalo. did five people. This one person bothers you. Here's five more people who bother you because now you'll work faster. That's grace. And we can't handle it. And we have to be mindful of that. So don't greed for grace, for blessings, for experiences. Be mindful of what you have and get as deep as you can in that. O son of Kunti Arjuna, by avoiding these three ways down into the realms of darkness, man acts for his own highest good and sets himself on the upward way to the highest state. One who ignores the commands of scripture and follows his own ego-driven desires finds neither happiness, nor fulfillment, nor the supreme goal of life. This is, again, a very telling uh, verse. You may think that you're going to find all these things if you focus on ego-driven desires. But the truth at the end of the day is, you'll be neither happy, you'll be neither fulfilled. And, of course, the supreme goal of freedom, which our souls crave desperately, will also not come. So, I love when Krishna just states certain things and just leaves it at that. Because then it's up to us. You want to continue this journey of suffering and confusion and trying everything out? That's okay. You know, go ahead, do that. But know for a fact, and neither happiness nor fulfillment, nor the supreme goal will come. Take, this is the last verse of this chapter. Take true scripture, therefore, as your guide in determining what should be done and what should be avoided. With intuitive understanding of the injunctions of Holy Writ, perform your earthly duties." And that's the end of 16th. One important thing over here is, with intuitive understanding of the injunctions of Holy Writ. One thing about Scripture, if you realize and you'll see, is that it's very contradictory. It says, this is the best thing, and then two pages later, it'll say, and this is the best thing. (laughs) It'll say, do this, and then in the next page, it'll say, make sure you don't do this. The very same thing. You know, put out a lot of energy, and then he'll say, but just don't do anything, and keep offering everything to God. (laughs) Really have a lot of willpower, and say, but really keep surrendering all your will. So, there's this constant, you can say almost, uh, contradiction to a lot of these principles. And so, therefore, a lot of intuition is required to actually truly understand and follow scripture. And a lot of things that Yogananda would say, the way Sri Yukteswar trained them, is that they would just read one verse and then meditate on it and meditate on it and meditate on it. And Yogananda, you know, while doing this as a young disciple, and whenever his mind would say, you know, let's let's move on, Sri Yukteswar would pick it up and says, not yet, there is still meat you know, in this verse that you've not yet consumed. And so he would just have them meditate again and again. So this is a wonderful thing of a practice for all of us to do. Don't just read scripture, you know, the way in fact even we are. We're just going through it so we get broad strokes of understanding of what the potentials are for what Krishna is trying to say. But work with them intuitively. Because it's going to be very relative. It's going to change by circumstance. It's going to change by people. If you'll see across all our scriptures, all the stories of all the saints, you'll see such you know just varied realities. One can get really angry. One's really shant. One you know is all for putting out a lot of energy. One just does absolutely nothing. So on and so forth. And you have to really tune into what's appropriate, what's applicable. When do I apply these principles? And as Krishna says, when a lower dharma conflicts with a higher dharma, it ceases to be a dharma. So really, constantly tuning into what's a lower state of awareness here, what's a higher state of awareness, and so on and so forth. But have fun with scriptures in this particular way. Just meditating on each verse and trying to go as deep as you can into what these masters are saying. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, I took
1: way <laughs> Not more than all. my. It was wonderful. I was thinking that one of the things that I have enjoyed the most in this mini getaway was how little or hardly anything I used my mobile. I mean, hardly anything. It was such a relaxation for my senses for my nervous system, system, for my state of mind. It gave me, really, an overall sense of well-being. And I was thinking that nowadays, especially in this Dwapara Yuga, one of the ways in which the demonic forces come into our lives is through social media, and internet and let's admit that many of us spend a lot of time indulging into it not only that we are constantly attached to those demonic forces and we just want to you know just be there and be hypnotized by them As Krishna was saying, we become slaves of those forces and we are imprisoned in them. So I was thinking that Krishna here says very strongly, avoid lust, anger, and greed. And that's what we are constantly being bombarded daily through social media so this is the challenge that I would like for you and for me to practice very consciously throughout this week because as Krishna says it is just for our own best interest so let's do something practical, practical with it so what I'm going to propose is this First of all, don't wake up and the first thing that you do is go and see your messages or your phone and in the same way, please, before you go to sleep, give yourself minimum two hours between the last message that you checked and going to bed. So, first of all, give yourself minimum 1 or 2 hours after you wake up before checking your phone and in the same way 2 hours before going to sleep you go to sleep please don't use your phone and throughout the day only use your phone perhaps 3 to 5 times and every time you use your phone don't spend more than 45 minutes so that will take a lot of reorganizing next week and the use of your cell phone social media and how much you are going to be entangled uh, with internet so as much as you can check your phone from three to five times throughout the day only when it's necessary, and when that time comes, don't spend more than 45 minutes uh, just, you know, replying messages, you know, calling back to those missed calls, or whatever you need to do. But then put your cell phone aside, and don't look at it, don't check it out, until the next time, that probably will be in another two, three, four hours. So I don't know how it will work for you. I don't know some of you have uh, very hectic schedules and need your cell phone in order to function. But adjust things. Make sure that you use less and less and less of the cell phone. and, And don't put yourself, I mean, don't influence yourself by those demonic forces that come constantly through our social media and let's be very strict with it I mean this is just the easiest that we could do in order to start you know setting aside those things that are not necessary and certainly are not helping us to attune ourselves with those godly Influences that Krishna uh, advises to be surrounded with. So I would say that if we can all (laughs) make a pact (laughs) about. So if we're not checking your
0: messages and not responding to you, now you know (laughs) we're not to be blamed. We're following this challenge.
1: Yes, I think it's going to be wonderful. It
0: is. It's going to be harder than we think it is. You know, because and sometimes it's yeah. like, let me just quickly <laughs> check this out. Oh, there's some thought comes. Let me just, what's the definition of this word? Yeah.
1: <laughs> and don't bring your cell phone to the bathroom. Oh yeah, that's yes. a big one. Not that one. <laughs> All right.